Well, we've um, come to to the end uh, of our series on Hebrews, and that will bring us up to chapter 11 and chapter 12. Chapter 13 is beautiful. Uh, I view it more like a postscript or a coda. I'm not going to study that. Um, and we did look at chapter 12 last week, but I want to bring together chapters 11 and chapter 12 tonight. And the focus of tonight, the first part, will be chapter 11, which is the famous chapter on faith. And we haven't looked at that so far, and I'm going to make that the focus of what we do tonight. And it's a chapter that is problematic simply because it is so lovely. By that I mean that there's a great temptation to read it out of context as inspiring stories for believers of all ages to emulate these heroes of the faith. Now, I don't want to deny the value of that, but it does not help us with a bigger question, which is where does this chapter fit into the argument of Hebrews? Why does he have this extended um, chapter on faith here pretty close to the climax of the argument. That's the question I want to look at tonight. And along the way, um, we're going to also do something else, which is to try to humanise faith. Faith is a word that suffers from being put into a religious context. And that means that it becomes an exclusivist professional word. I want to broaden it. Um, I want to look at faith as a human faculty that, that all humans participate in, not, not as a strange religious faculty. So we'll go through chapter 11, and then we will ask the question of why and how does chapter 11 move into chapter 12. And then we'll finish with a really powerful architecture that looks back right across the whole book of Hebrews and overviews the book and structures the book as a magnificent chiastic structure. So if we're going to look at this bigger question of you know, where does chapter 11 fit in his argument, let's go right back to the beginning and uh, where we began uh, when we opened these talks. And we began by adopting a literary approach to Hebrews. And from Sarah's great talks, we, we heard about what that means. I mean, one of the things it means is that you don't just look at arguments and books like Hebrews as a standalone intellectual artifact. You do your best to, to try and work out what was, the, what was the audience, who was the writer, what problems were they trying to solve. In the case of Hebrews, uh, we really identified that the problem that, that, that the audience had, or that certainly the writer whom we, whom we hypothesised was Apollos, was really worried about was what I call the Judaising of Christianity. In other words, he feared that this tremendous climactic intervention by God in human affairs was at a crossroads go one of two ways. It could get developed 
along the trajectory of innovation and adventure and vision that that had begun with the resurrection. It could go that way. Developed out into its logical conclusions, its logical conclusion, its, its, its impact and its consequences. Allowed to grow, allowed to amplify. Or it could go the other way. It could get sucked back in and domesticated to the Jewish faith. And we made the point that one of the strange things for us as a modern audience to understand when we look at the New Testament in general is that we're looking back at it through the prism of a couple of thousand of years of Christianity. So we retrospectively and anachronistically attribute a Christian construct onto the books. If we went the other way and got into their shoes, there was no Christianity. Uh, these Jews clearly thought of what had begun in Jesus as an extension of Jewishness. So the word Christian didn't exist. Um, they were clearly people who thought that this was a development of the Jewish faith, and which is true. It is a development of the Jewish faith. But as we saw uh, in our, that first talk, what this began to mean in practice was that for many of the Jews, they were actually getting sucked back into the status quo, the very controlling um, orthodox headquarters of Jerusalem. And that meant in practice, one foot in, one foot out. One foot in the faith, one foot in the new, one foot in the old. Jesus himself had warned about this. He said, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. And they were probably doing that. They were trying to put the new wine into old wineskins. This is human nature, by the way. I'm, I'm not wanting to stigmatise the first century Jews for doing it. We do it as well. The poor, the poor Holy Spirit is continually trying to expand the imagination of humankind. Now, and he's often using prophets like uh, the writer to Hebrews to do it. Within uh, this Judaizing, the temple that would have been central and rituals were central, so in, in essence, the, the Jewishness meant a predominance of Mosaic law and obedience with Mosaic law. We went further in the first talk and we also tried to take this idiosyncratically Jewish religious problem and transpose it to an equivalent problem that we might face in our era. And we, we looked at Bonhoeffer and we looked at how religion is a smokescreen to God and how Bonhoeffer in his prison years was searching for a religionless Christianity. Um, and in, in the religionless Christianity, what that does is it blows apart the idea of a special clique, special class, us favoured ones. And we, we stop seeing ourselves as, you know, specially favoured, be we Jews, be we Christians, but rather we see ourselves as belonging to the world. So we, we are human beings first and Christians second. And if we do that, as he said, <coughs> in that case, Christ is no longer an object of religion, but he's actually something very different, which is the Lord of the world. So that was our project, which is, I think, quite an analogue 
of the project that the first century Jews were engaged in. In other words, um, I think the religious instinct, the pious, the, uh, the pietistic instinct is deep in human nature and it's not. Um, it's not actually the, um, the faculty of, of faith that God wants to develop. So then we come to Hebrews. Now Hebrews 11, and I put up at the time um, this schematic, um, which is a schematic from chapter 6 to chapter 13. So it's a schematic of the second half of Hebrews. And, um, if you're listening, of course, on a podcast, um, you won't see the schematic, although we'll have it up on our website for Gospel Conversations. And uh, we um, we put the PowerPoint slides up because we we do use visuals quite a lot, but nonetheless I can talk it through. So chapter 6 was a big turning point, and that introduced chapter 7 and 9, which was the beginning of the new order of Melchizedek. The resurrection order is uh, the logic and mechanic, uh, mechanics of the resurrection order, the worldview of the resurrection order is amplified in chapter 7, 8 and 9. And chapter 10, the first half of chapter 10, is a declaration that the law is finished. And it's finished um, in a sense because it was always a means to an end. It was never an end in itself, he argues. Its goal was always the perfection of humanity and it failed to perfect humanity. It failed to cleanse the conscience. Um, that failure, of course, in the context of the argument, was a failure that God had always foreseen. It's a fa I think it's called a failure from a human point of view because the broader arguments throughout the New Testament is God, God never intended the law to be the vehicle of salvation. It was, it was a stepping stone. But having, as it were, demolished the entire, and it's important in this argument, go back to what we just said, to know that he's demolished, therefore, the entire... Um, scaffolding of the Mosaic law and uh, the language of demolition in Hebrews is uncompromising it's black and white there's no grey areas, he's not arguing for some vestigial use of it it's, it's declared to be obsolete, it's, it's the strongest language in the New Testament about the law in, uh, in, in my view but that leads me to a therefore because what the law had done was provided the practices <laughs> of people. It tells me what to do to obey God. You've taken that away. Um, what's left? So put yourself in the mind of the, the Jewish Christians that we just talked about um, who viewed themselves as Jews. Jews who followed Jesus. And now you've just ripped the rug from under my feet. I mean, what, what practices are there left for me to observe? What are you talking about? That is where chapter 11 comes in. And the huge declaration is this, that the entire Old Testament was never about the law. It was not the operating principle of the Old Testament. The operating principle of the Old Testament from beginning to end was faith. Human beings encountering and believing God. And that was what was going on. So what chapter 11 does is not present a standalone um, gallery of heroes. It, it actually rewrites the entire Old Testament. He reinterprets the entire Old Testament with new eyes 
and says what was going on the whole time was not law, not compliance, because compliance is the analogue of law, but faith. That's what was going on for the entire time. So the modus operandi of Genesis to Malachi is faith, and that's what becomes interesting about all the players, not not law and religion, but faith, and faith in ordinary circumstances. This is a, it's, it's such a simple point, but to be honest with you, until, until I asked myself this question of where Hebrews 11 fitted into the story, it hadn't occurred to me. I mean, it was a puzzle to me. Preparing this as I've been in the last couple of months, I've been knowing the end of Hebrews is coming, and I'm looking ahead to chapter 11, scratching my head saying, where does chapter 11 fit it? doesn't seem to fit, but it fits completely once you once the obvious becomes clear that he's telling these people, far from introducing something alien and strange and new that now we've got to live by, that um, Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and David and Samuel and the prophets, far from saying they live by a different mechanism, folk or law, we're living by a new one. No, no, they their mechanism was always faith. We're just continuing the game. The game, is, it, is, it is a continuous story. The object of faith is amplified, and as he will say, as we will see in chapter 11, the hero of faith, the ultimate, all we've, all we've done is we've seen the ultimate hero of faith in Jesus. But he is the consummation of the faith of others. He's not the introduction of a new foreign way. Uh, as, as a sub-theme, what this does, and, and it's a sub-theme, it's a very strong sub-theme throughout Hebrews, this replaces Abraham as the archetype of humanity, not Moses. This is a really important comment. Um, we're talking about both these characters as archetypes, how they're used in, the, in, in a literary uh, construct, not, not as individuals. In, in the story of the Bible, they are both presented as epic individuals who served their generations by faith and did the right thing. The Bible doesn't distinguish between them morally or uh, in, in terms of their faith. But as archetypes, you know, what they stand for, if Moses is the archetype, then law and temple and sacrifice and ritual is the infrastructure. But as Mark um, Strom mentioned in one of his wonderful talks, he, he can't remember any circumstances where Paul speaks of Moses as an archetype in favourable terms. He's actually used more as an archetype of something that's fading away or isn't quite working. Whereas Abraham is a very positive archetype, the archetype of faith. So that's what happens. Now let's begin to go into chapter 11 and look at what we can learn. And the first thing to learn from chapter 11 is that there's a, there's a grammar, a, a recurrent grammar throughout this chapter. It's almost poetic. There's the, the, there's the hammering repetition of by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, introducing every sentence, every new character. Then there's a person. The subject of every sentence is a person. But the important thing, and I've got a slide up here for those of you who are just listening on podcasts, that has highlighted all the verbs in red. Uh, 
These are people doing ordinary things in ordinary life or extraordinary things in ordinary life. None of the circumstances are religious. None of the circumstances are law-based. There's only two where somewhat religious language is used. Um, and and um, that's Abel who brought God a better, a better offering and Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And both of these predated the law. It's almost like he deliberately chooses as the only two actions that look like they could be in some way religious are actually predated to the law. But the rest of them, the context of faith is life's ordinary experiences. That's really important for us to know because life is what we've got. The narrative of life is what we're in. It's the context. And what faith does is it brings this context to light as meaningful. It invites me to read life not as accidental, not as a series of unconnected circumstances, um, not as autonomous, not as merely a set of mechanics, not as physics and, and, uh, and materiality in the world, but all those things are true, but that's not the real substance of this narrative. We are involved in God's great narrative. And the context where we meet him will be everywhere in that narrative. Everywhere. So, death is a context. Enoch taken from life. Boat building. Noah was a boat builder. Migration. Abraham. Migrant. Refugee. The, the, the story begins with a refugee. Making of homes. Living in tents. Bearing of children. Motherhood. Um, the blessing. The, the words that come out of my mouth. By faith, Isaac, Isaac blessed Jacob. The faith to die, by faith Jacob died. The faith to speak, by faith Joseph spoke, gave instructions, the faith to give instructions. In other words, his instructions, uh, his speech came out of a world view of faith. Um, Moses' parents, political subterfuge, they hid. They hid him. They disobeyed laws. Um, personal charisma, um, Desire for audience by faith Moses refused to be known, decided to take a small scale life, not a big scale life. The choices in life, he chose to be mistreated. Um, the decisions of life by faith he left Egypt. The not fearing, faith feeds not fearing because life circumstances threaten and yet faith helps us not fear. Perseverance, we persevere through faith. Um, welcoming of the spies, hospitality, Rahab is hospitable, and so on and so on, administering justice, quenching fury, and so on. So this is a magnificent opening point that we can really identify with. The context of faith is real life, not religious rituals. What this does, if we go back to um, an earlier slide where which we built around Bonhoeffer, who had this problem that if faith is in the corner as a religious experience, um, it's disqualified. Um, so he, he had two aspects of um, religious piety. One was what he called metaphysics. In other words, there's a sacred world up there and there's a profane world down here, a sort of a split world. And the second was interiority. What that does is say to myself, what, it says to me that you can have an internal faith, a private faith, but it's not public because it's not actually out there in the world. Clearly what we've just said challenges that. And what happens is that faith bridges the sacred and the profane because faith 
tells me what I thought was profane is sacred. Boat building is sacred. Um, political activities and manipulations is sacred. Childbearing is sacred. Migrating is sacred. Building a home is sacred because God's there. So that's what faith does. It unites the worlds. And furthermore, it bridges private and public because far from God being somewhere in a personal and intimate and private life, faith is actually in public actions. And all those actions in Hebrews 11, they're very public actions. People saw them. People observed them. Um, they, the decisions impacted the flow of events. They were movements in life. And so faith can be seen as a way of reading life, not religious piety. Uh, I think it's a really helpful phrase for us, which he's saying, begin with the Jews. The great, the thing that the narrative of the Old Testament teaches us is that God is in life and we're invited, faith invites us to read life for his presence in it. The second point is the goal of faith in chapter 11. Faith is, has a goal, it has, it has an object in mind, and that object is transcendence and meaning. That life is meaningful. It's, it's epically meaningful. The, the phrase that captures that sense of epic meaning is that they all look for a city whose builder and maker is God. Now that, we must not read that as religious terms or, or as heaven. What, what we're looking for is the consummation of the scattered experiences of life into a great city of God. So this is the greatest declaration that we're not involved in a a uh, short-term game here. We're involved in a long-term game and God has secured its ultimate meaning. So life is fundamentally good, meaningful and transcendent. That's what the goal of faith is. There is meaning in the narrative. Now, where does anyone get meaning from anything? Uh, this is an important question. Well, you get meaning if things have a beginning and they have an end. That's what frames meaning. Now, by beginning and by end, I don't mean a temporal beginning and a temporal end. That's merely a transactional measurement. If something's got a beginning, it means it's got a causation. Someone caused this to happen. So if someone caused this to happen, there's intent behind it. And end means consummation, that there is actually a goal behind it. So the beginning and end the story of the, the narrative of the Old Testament says that, that life has, that faith says life has meaning because it's got a beginning and it's got an end. And both beginning and end are really heavily emphasised in the text of chapter 11. You know, by faith we understand God framed the world. By faith they believe that they were searching for a city whose builder and maker is God. What this leads to is a point Miroslav Volf made in his wonderful talk. So there are three big parts of the, of the gospel narrative and arguably we focus on the less important part we being Christians today but by analogue these Jews were doing the same thing, that is the redemption mechanism, in their particular case it was Moses, the whole exodus thing, focus on that and what flowed out of Moses was the law and, as and for us that is the cross, now as magnificent as that is that actually is not the beginning or the end. Redemption is the means. And the, 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 the beginning is the creation. 
and the end is the consummation. And creation and consummation are what really frame meaning. And in that particular case, this phrase that the goal of fate is the beginning and the end is really, really instructive for us. Okay, so um, the goal of faith was the city whose builder and maker is God. And uh, that lovely quote from T.S. Eliot, in my beginning is my end, uh, from East Coker of Four Quartets, that when I understand the beginning of something and the end of something, I, I, then, I, then I can construct meaning. Uh, so... That's the goal of faith, that, that life is, is, is not an accident, it's not an uh, incidental thing, um, it's got a, big end, a beginning and a big end. So what about the dynamics of faith? And this is really getting into how faith works, because the, the nice thing about faith is that it is and it isn't a mystery. Um, and I want to take, I want to demystify it here, because it's, it's actually got operating features to it. And the, so I'm not regarding it as a static attribute that some people are blessed to have and other people are blessed not to have. As I say of myself, um, I, I would put myself by nature in those who are sceptical. Um, and in my moments of scepticism, I just thank God that he got me when I was five. <laughs> um, Ron, you had more trouble <laughs> when you were 20. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, so faith's a verb, not a noun, um, and it's the result of a conversation. It's actually not. It actually is bred by a conversation in, in all of these cases between God and humanity. Um, that you know, on God's side, it begins with a promise. That's actually in the text of Hebrews repeated. So God, prom if I promise you something, like I'm making a, a promise. Until you hear the promise, you might not have faith. But now it's going to react. It, it, now I get a reflex to it. So what do I think about that promise? It's not like I had to think it up. Someone started the conversation. It wasn't me. So, so the conversation of faith was started by God, not by us, which is good news. And um, um, it, is not a, it is a speech act, by the way. I'm not going to go into that fully, but um, a brilliant uh, South American linguist called Maturano made the point that our grammar of linguistics is limited if we just parse things according to their function like verb, noun, adjective. Why did he say it was limited? He said, well, yes, sometimes speech is just descriptive, but sometimes, more often than not, speech from human beings enacts a new reality. Like speech starts stuff going, it starts bushfires. And I can remember one consultant, lovely old guy, telling me when I was very young, at this point, so I go home to my wife, and I've married, happily married for 20 years, and I say, I'm sick of you, I've met someone else, and I think you're ugly. Well, guess what? That's not the same as saying, I caught the bus home tonight, and the sun just set out there. Now, I will be inaugurating a bushfire of a new reality. So I, <laughs> as far as Maturano is concerned, I, I've got to analyse these two things differently. <laughs> But this is part of a bigger truth that language enacts new realities. We share that with God. So a speech act is a sort of speech that inaugurates a new cycle of reality. And, and for Maturana, one of them was actually the promise cycle. That, that when I 
I say something that invokes a response in you, now you've promised me something. So, so, so it, it is not, a promise is not a command. So God didn't begin the conversation with humanity with commandments. Uh, in fact, they came way down the track. Way down the track. And, and all the writers of the New Testament are putting this word promise up. It's very important. And it's, if you want to actually get down and dirty, I don't know if Hebrew says it or Corinthians, but it's the promise of life. And, and we get this phenomenal statement, you know, from Corinthians, all the promises of God in Jesus are yes. Every good instinct is yes. I had good intentions for all of humanity. So that's what began the great conversation with humanity, promise. Um, our part of it is now a response. So faith is a dynamic response. I'm going to believe that promise. And his language is interesting. Believe that he is, and he rewards those who seek him. Now, this is very interesting, because mostly today we would stop with believe that he is, like it's a philosophical position. So we see that faith is not just an intellectual assent to the existence of God. It's actually that he loves me, because he began the thing with a promise. You, if, you, if, if you find someone who says, well, I believe in God, but just think he's bitchy, or believe in God and he's aloof, well, no, you don't. Sorry, that's not what they're talking about. You haven't responded to his promise. Um, it's a belief that he intends good for us all the days of our life and the planet. He is the rewarder of all people and all things. So faith is fundamentally optimistic. So that's the dynamics. Does that help, make sense? Um, now, uh, the good part about it is actually faith, you can work on it or you can neglect it. And I think this is really important because clearly if you withdraw from a conversation, um, it's hard for God to do much with it. I mean, when I was little, when I say little, I wasn't, I was year 10, 11, I got into scripture memory. No one told me to, I just loved it. I think I got up to 300 verses at last count. I used to, I was a problem. I was a relatively talented sportsman, not hugely, but relatively sort of average at everything I did. But as a fieldsman, I suffered enormously at cricket from daydreaming. And uh, it got worse when I was learning verses at deep square leg, you know. <laughs> there actually was an occasion when I'd turn and walk back to the boundary. It could have been in the first 11 and the ball went between my feet. I think I was... It might have been one of my verses, but... Like the West Indies. Yeah, like the West Indies. The point is, I, I really am grateful for that because there's, you know, like, I could be running around the block or I could be anywhere, but there's this reservoir of stuff the Holy Spirit's got in my mind to bring verses to my mind. You know what I mean? Um, so it's, it's a discipline. It's a discipline. At the moment, I'm, I don't know how far I'll get, but I'm trying to learn the book of Ephesians off by heart. Um, partly because it's so thick. I haven't got past the first five verses and I'm still struggling. <laughs> but I think, I think those things are good. Um, now, this is the next dynamic, and it's kind of an extension of this, that vision is a driver of faith. So faith is in something which is a vision. So it begins in the mind, radio, it begins in the mind it, with a, an imagination or a vision. It's not the same thing. Now, I, we deal with this all the time with my clients. I mean, this is why this is not religious language. And we spend a lot of time in our work 
building a picture of a building that doesn't exist yet. A building not being a physical building, but a system. You're building an organisation, give us a picture of it. And uh, if you don't give people a picture, then there's nothing to believe in. But if you give them a picture, the picture tends to create belief. Um, and what that picture does, it then, the, the picture of the end, then starts to come back and it's how I interpret situations in the present. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now let, let me give you a really down and dirty, so, that, so this is the wonderful epic part from Hebrews that all these people were, were actually had a picture of, uh, they were looking for a country that was not their own. They were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And that picture mediated, instructed, informed every decision they made. That picture shone back onto it. And that changes my choice. If I didn't have the picture, I wouldn't make the choices. Does that make sense? So let me just uh, um, now go to the next point. Faith is not a religious quality. So I'm going to tell you verbatim what one of my most senior clients said to me the other day. Um, he's a very, very senior businessman in a global organisation. He's now taken it over. He was the CFO five years ago and it was losing money. It was a basket case. Well, a big basket case. If you're going to have a basket case, have a small one. Big one is a lot of trouble. So it was a big basket case and he's the CFO. He's just come in. By the way, he's never studied accountancy for a day in his life, so it means he's a great CFO. He studied history. <laughs> and um, he's saying, I, I was saying to Bob, Bob, we've got to have a goal here. Um, hell, let's, let's make it a billion dollars profit. Why don't we do that? It, Tony, I had no evidence. It was an act of faith. But hell, you can't say $900 million. Say a billion. <laughs> That's happened. In three years, they're making a billion dollars profit. Right? They declared something that didn't exist as a hope, which they thought was halfway possible, but let, let's just declare it. And from a CFO of one of the biggest banks in the world, quite unquote, it's an act of faith, Tony. The faith runs human enterprises. Chris Roberts, the CEO of Cochlear, who's a client of mine, is a wonderful human being, would say, Tony, there's just so much more faith in, in our technology than people realise. It's not all evidence-based. There's so much more faith in science than people know. So all human enterprises, this is not like it's some, oh, over here you've got religion and that's piety and that's all faith. We don't know anything about it over here in life. Um, but it's particularly important in Australia where the innovation agenda has come up. And what Turnbull done? Turnbull believes in stuff that doesn't exist. And that gives you hope. Yeah. Because you can analyse, let's analyse unemployment and the falling stock price of uh, iron ore. Let's keep doing that. And let's get another look at it and, yeah, we'll just prove we're going to die. <laughs> you know, and, and so analysis doesn't lead anyone an inch into the future. The great innovators are people who, against expectations, against advice, said, I believe it's going to do something different. Just at the moment, Atlassian, of course, is the pin-up company worth as much as Qantas, two young guys. I was in a restaurant and with a, one of our clients and he said, oh, there's the billionaire in the restaurant. And it was Mike Cannon Brooks in his black T-shirt and jeans with his girlfriend, like, looked like an out-of-work 
university student. Um, and they don't care about money, but they, they were counterintuitive in what they did. And they, they did stuff like, oh, you're not meant to do that. No, you don't run a business that way. No, it doesn't work. Look, let me give you best practice. Let me give you... And they just said, oh, screw you. We're doing it differently. Because we believe something different. So what I'm saying is that faith is a quality of great leaders. It's part of how we are. It's not a religious quality. Um, this means that the opposition people put up between faith and reason is an utterly false opposition. I haven't got time to go into it, but it's one of the, it's one of the, one of the most distorting um, choices people are given. Uh, there's a lot of faith in reason, and there's a lot of reason in faith. They're actually very intermingled. Um, and we've talked about that already. And I've talked about what I've just said there. So, I actually, um, I run past you a book I want to write. Um, I've run it past uh, John Stackhouse. He thinks it's a good... I've just got the title, but that's all you need for a book is the title, right? Um, <laughs> that's all I have to go. <laughs> that'll, that'll be my contribution to it, just the title. Um... I, 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 it, it, it came upon me when I uh, was at the airport, and if you go, because I'm at airports a lot, but if you go to the religious section of the airport, it's all the atheist stuff. You, you just look at it, it's religion, uh, metaphysics, it's all written by atheists nowadays, there's no Christian stuff there. But I'd also come to believe that for, the, that, that for lots of people, I think as, as believers, we falsely... Uh, stereotype people as antagonistic to the faith and structure our dialogue as if you're antagonistic. I feel it's much better to say most people would uh, actually envious. Because many people have said that to me, I'd, I'd love to have, I'd love to believe, I'd love to have your faith. So the idea is to write a book called Faith a User's Guide, like a manual to how to get faith as a working title. Do you think that would good idea? I think, I'll think about it. It's a great idea. That's all it probably ever will be. Um, so, so that repositions chapter 11 as a, as, a, as, a, as a great dialogue of how to live a good life, really. And, and what it then comes to is that the climax is in Jesus. Now, the epic first two verses of chapter 12... He turns to Jesus. And very importantly, very importantly, he uses the same phrase. It's, it's almost one of these um, governing motifs in the book that he used in chapter 2, which is fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the big therefore. He's the code of everything. And he says it in chapter 2, and he says it here. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author. In here, the phrase is the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, so really, to be honest with you, to read that first part of chapter 12, you should view it as the climax. It should be in chapter 11. Like, his argument is, it began, at the faith kind of dynamic as being the governing dynamic of, of, uh, the, of, of uh, that God wants from human beings, it climaxes in Jesus. That's really how the argument's going. And um, so, let's persevere, run the race, 
Now, very importantly, this is made very plain by some translators, it used to be the pioneer of our faith, which, if you think about it, makes Jesus like a bit of a, the owner of a clique. You know, it's you're in our faith versus you're not in our faith. So it becomes, it's almost like the club. The, the, the word our is not there. And no, no good translation today has got it. It is faith. He's the pioneer of faith, plural. So this just makes it a, a, a broad, general quality that all human beings will be interested in. Um, and uh, so he, what he's doing, he's doing it on behalf of all humanity and all hope. Um, the word author is dropped in the better translations because author can mean the one who initiated it and I think the feeling is here pioneer is better he's the ultimate example of how to do it the ultimate, uh, but perfecter we talked about that word before he's the, he's the consummate example so what this is very interesting, you know, wonderful, and I think it's great for us, but what aspect of the life of Jesus does he mean? Does he mean he prayed regularly? Does he mean uh, he performed miracles? What aspect of the life of Jesus? Because he actually answers that question. Um, one of the best things I ever read about biblical interpretation was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that the Bible's like a door with a key. And the key's often right next to the door, which is in the next verse. That's all you've got to do is read the next. Most people don't. They just think, oh, this is a wonderful, this is a wonderful text. Let's put it on the fridge. Read the next verse. Ask yourself a question. What does that mean? Read the next verse. And um, uh, the next verse is very plain. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. This is interesting. Think. Think what I said, faith is, is in an end game. A builder, what did Abraham say? He's searching for a city whose builder and maker is God. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He's searching for a city whose builder and maker is God. What did he say to his disciples in John 14? In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Um, he didn't mean the future. He meant his death. So Jesus was archetypally of them all dying and going through the uh, anguish and the shame of the cross. Why? For the joy. For the joy. Jesus was just a winner. You know, like I, you know it, he knew it was an investment. And, and so um, he, he's really being presented as the ultimate believer in the meaning of life within that narrative. It's a wonderful climax to the chapter when you look at it that way. Uh, now, what about chapter 12 as we move now toward the climax? Because chapter 12 has got this tremendous epic conclusion, which is Mount Zion, but it doesn't go straight there. It goes to chastisement. And you get this really strange bit, which I think, Lisa, you said you loved. Right? <laughs> you want on your gravestone. You want on your gravestone, yeah. So there's this whole part of chapter 12 where he, he talks about um, uh, chastisement. Um, I haven't seen my Bible. Have you got your Bible? Could I just read it out because um, I can't find mine. For those who... who, who he says, uh, in your struggle against sin, after he just talked about Jesus, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You've forgotten the, 
that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. This is very interesting language. He disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as sons. The word punishing is very, very interesting. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children, you're not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Very, very interesting passage as to what it's doing there. Look, I think contextually it's pretty plain that these Jews, for believing in Jesus, were undergoing a fair amount of deprivation. I don't think they were being thrown to the lions or anything, but they certainly were losing status. They were certainly losing identity. They were certainly possibly losing property. It was not easy to be a believer in Jesus for these. So that's what they. That, so circumstantially, stuff's working out for them. But the interesting thing is, what about this language that calls it punishment and chastisement? Because yeah, when we normally read those words as "you've done something wrong." So I'm punishing you, right? Now, what I'm going to argue is you've got to get that meaning right out of your mind. Because there's no here, for instance, in this, in this text, it's very clear. He is not telling them that the suffering that they're going through, and he referred to it about two or three times earlier in the book, has anything to do with them being bad Christians. As a matter of fact, because they're, it's because they're doing the right thing they're suffering. It's because their faith in Christ they're suffering. So in this circumstance, these people are not like the Corinthians, for instance. He's not like the Corinthians who's saying, you're, you know, you're being punished, you're going chastisement because of all the prostit- temple prostitutes you're sleeping with and because of all the orgies you're going to. They were not doing that at all. So, so therefore, what does it mean? And, and this is something that I've been only, I think, this year begun to understand um, that might be a bit of a bold claim to say I understand it, but I, I'm saying that we need to reframe chastisement here. Um, it actually comes back to what I talked about before. It's actually not so much for wrongdoing, but in this world between the two kingdoms, we are living in a contested environment. That's the nature of the space. Uh, prior to New Jerusalem, the environment is contested, uh, which means for reasons we simply cannot say some of us will get sick. Uh, for, for no good reason. Uh, some of us will have uh, bad things happen to us. I think we will all have that in some measure. And the big mistake is to try to find the sin that caused it. That is the big mistake. This is just, the whole argument is that the sin question is now n- nothing to do with us. But it's even a bad mistake to even modify the word sin and say, if only I'd been slightly more obedient, uh, this wouldn't have happened to me. I would have got that job. Um, I wouldn't have had this bad thing happen at work. 
I just can't tell you how important this is, having been down this track many times before. When bad stuff happens, there's a natural instinct to diagnose and blame yourself. And unfortunately, uh, theology and faith can make it worse. Actually, not better. You take everything too seriously. Like, you know, look, stuff happens. Like, you know, get over it. Um, so, Tony, would the, a punishment and chastisement be like um, what James is talking about when he talks about trials? I think it's better trials. That, 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 that essentially what I'm going to go into is what I'm sure you go to the same place. If I'm going to grow, like let's now just change the paradigm completely uh, to an athlete training. Mm. And if you want to develop a muscle, you've actually got to break it down. You only do that with some pain. And if you actually want to excel in lots of sports, you have to put yourself through pain. You get a reward out of it. And so we're... Actually, in all of life, that's a kind of journey that we go through. There's effort and then there's a reward. And the effort, like I was at the gym this morning and I sort of enjoy it. But I stop myself looking at the clock to when the cross trainer gets to 35 minutes because I start counting the seconds. I just, it's nice to do because you can stop it. You know, and stopping is great. So, um, however, there's no shortcut to getting to 35 minutes. Yeah, I cannot be fit without going through the pain. That's actually life. <laughs> and it's just not a bad little metaphor that life's about growing and there's no shortcut to wisdom. And, you know, we, we might see a wonderful, you know, older people who are very wise. Well, there's a lot of pain behind that and a lot of good choices and... They just didn't get there by um, by an easy route. I think that's what it's. So trial. The idea is that trials make us grow. You know, I think you know Scott Peck's book on the road less travel is a fantastic expose of that. We're we're on the planet to grow and develop, and and the way we grow and develop is by getting to these situations he mentioned in Hebrews 11, where there's a test between my my vision and what I'm going through. So that's exactly what I would say. But but we, but. Um, so therefore, we live in an environment that's host that has hostilities and can challenge us. Um, in other words, the, what I'm saying is that the environment of life will definitely present us with circumstances that will challenge optimism and challenge the belief that it has a big meaning in it. And that's actually the nature of the space. Uh, I was going to go into, into depth in Psalm, the Psalm 74. I'm just gone off on Psalm 74. Um, it is the most astonishing psalm I think I've ever read, and it's some that very few of us have read. I, I, I think given the lateness, I won't, but I'll just just throw that one at you. And the only thing I'll say just briefly, it's, it begins like this. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Now that looks like He's punishing them for doing stuff wrong. And the Psalms are, are the place to explore this. It's true in some Psalms, it's reading it, it does appear that it's, it's presented as, as, as a punishment for wrong. This one is not the case. And it just it is a magnificent epic Psalm. It's a fantastic chiastic structure. I think it's almost the epic Psalm of all prayer, to be honest with you. The key to reading Psalm 74 is it's all about the desecration of the temple. For the temple, just read the cosmos. Read God's temple of the earth. And it's, it's, it's almost a paradigm of how we should pray for the earth. Um, but my point is that in this psalm, quite clearly, he's prepared to use the concept of chastisement and punishment 
He, he believes that God is sovereign. This is how I work the kind of theology out. God is sovereign, which means he is in charge of the bad stuff as well. He's got to be. I can't have it being somehow or other outside of his sovereignty. But don't ask me how it all fits together. So he can easily say, God, why are you angry with us? But he's actually just saying, he's almost saying what we all say. Why does bad stuff happen to good people? Like that's all he's saying. He's saying what we've all would say in our hearts from time to time and following this psalm through is almost the journey of faith. Now, for those who want to just look at the psalm later on, the chiastic structure hinges on the middle verse. It's actually ironic. The climax is in the middle. So the first half is bad and then he gets to verse 12. And what does verse 12 say? But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation to the earth. Not heaven. I've got no, he, I, I know he's king in heaven. But somehow or other, he's going to bring salvation to the earth. He, he's going to somehow or other bring salvation to disease, to tiredness, to frustration. He's going to do that. That's the great statement of faith on which the, the book hinges. Do you want to know the other clue? There's a, he keeps praying for the second half. The big change in the second half? Guess who's the biggest victim of all? That's God himself. Because it's against you, God, that the enemies have been arraigned. God, in the first half, God is out there as the sovereign king. Why have you let this happen? Second half, God, you're here with us in the narrative. And, and it's you above all who's being humiliated, not us. Which is incarnational. So... That's a very big picture of chastisement. And the argument he's going to make about chastisement is actually it's a sign God loves you because he want, why he wants you to share his perfection, he wants you to grow up to become like Jesus. And so the argument in chapter 12 is your tough times at the moment are actually a sign of God's love for you because he's wanting you, just as Jesus did, to, to, to mature into this perfection of humanity. Does that sort of make sense as to where the argument in 12 fits with after 11 and going on into the, into, into the rest. So the outcome of contested spaces is I grow. I, I, I grow. And if I believe, if I believe in this build, uh, city whose builder and maker is God, then there'll be no limits to the growth and the trajectory is always upward if I make the right choices. So... He then, I think the key phrase is endure hardship as discipline. I think that's the ultimate thing. That, that, is a, there's a, that, that phrase is incredibly um, provocative. In other words, interpret hardship as discipline, i.e. an opportunity to grow. Mm. That's what he's saying. Just get that mindset and view it differently. And so, discipline itself is teaching. It's teach, it teach, teaching, exactly. Is teaching so so it's a, it's a learning and development paradigm that he's got in this chapter twelve. Now, what's the end? As I said, the, the, it, we're not here with sadism, like you know, God is saddest, of which King Lear's phrase is still the best ever written. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. You know, little boys who catch flies and then take their wings off. And you've been there, done that. <laughs> So, this is not the kind of God we're serving. <laughs> um, in order that we may share his holiness, he's very explicit the, 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 and, and have the harvest of, of righteousness. 
So the holiness he's talking about in chapter 12 is not some purification. I think we have sinned. He's not trying to say it's like a scrubbing brush, you know, with God excoriating all the imperfections out of us. Um, rather, it's a, there's a lot behind this, and particularly the talk we, I did on the two kingdoms is, is what I had in mind here. The holiness is participating in the kingdom secrets of how God will bring salvation to the earth and the nature of his rule in the created order. Because if our king died on the cross, then there's something in that paradigm of rule that we have to learn as well. Okay, so that's the sweep through 11 and 12. Um, Sorry, what do you mean by salvation in that last line? Well, uh, the word salvation, I think, in, in, in its more, most common use in the epistles, is not a redemption of sins. Sure. It's the consummation and it's the recovery of the whole cosmos back to and beyond its initial glory. Mm. Um, so the idea of salvation is a rich, uh, growing, dynamic word of God restoring all the created order to the glory to house the glory it was always intended to house. So it's like rediscovering and engaging in purpose. Yeah, exactly. And and what we are doing now is we're we're doing it sort of a bit ahead of time. Sure. Uh, prior to the resurrection, but that's exactly a good way to put it. It's a rediscovery. Uh, I've often said to you before, you know, this tremendous focus on eschatology and creation which I'm talking about here, I, I, I thought a few years ago I was a little bit off, I mean, a, a little bit radical in it. it th- this is what dominated the early church fathers. I mean, you know, I don't have time to talk about it now, but you know, I implore you sometime to read some Irenaeus of Leon in, in the minds of many people I admire, the greatest theologian the church has produced since Paul, 170 AD, the Bishop of Leon in France. And his enormous theory of recapitulations. People come across Irenaeus' theory of recapitulation. Only one. You're missing out, guys. Like all this flotsam and jetsam, this kind of crappy little fairy floss we get in sermons. Man, go to the good stuff. Irenaeus on recapitulation, which is the reorientation of the entire cosmos in the glory of God. And beyond. His argument is that we're not going to get restored back to Adam. We're going to overshoot Adam. That's recapitulation. Now, yeah, I mean, this guy had a big, big mind. He's, he's not, not for nothing that some of the best people I know say Irenaeus is the high... He's, not really, he's in the top five. He's in the top ten. He's in the top ten over 2,000 years. I mean, forget kind of the Beatles or anything like this. This is the top ten over 2,000 years. Go read Irenaeus. Anyway, so, so with that... Um, uh, he then finishes, as we know in chapter 12, which we won't, won't go any further into, the final act is the coming of the city of God. So th- this is, again, uh, Hebrews begins with the creation and ends with the new creation of the city. Begin with the garden, end with the city. Um, which really I think is, the, I, I think is actually the, the metaphor of the city is about order in the cosmos. And, and as John Walton said in his wonderful talks, God loves order and, and this sense of order in the cosmos um, just the tremendous you have not come to a mountain of darkness and gloom you've come to the mountain of joy uh, so contested space will end contest is ephemeral it's not eternal 
Um, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and you've come to the joyful assembly. And interestingly, there's a pretty subtle inversion of the role of angels and humanity in this passage. And the wonderful, therefore, since we are receiving, I love that continuous tense, our kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, let us be thankful. <laughs> the least we can do and worship God uh, acceptably with reverence and all so um, that's that's pretty well Ed I just have one final thing to do uh, which will take me about five or ten minutes which is look back over the entire book and give you the entire book on a page um, I showed this to my wife she said why don't you just do that at the beginning <laughs> <laughs> there's two answers to that one it's more climactic to do it at the end and secondly I, I had to work it out as I went <laughs> so um, uh, I, I firmly believe that you know, part of the, the, uh, the Jewishness of Hebrews is it's a chiastic structure it's a massive chiastic structure so the chaotic structure is this V, which actually we use in one of our thinking tools. It is, it is the most profound answer to metaphysics I know of. Um, it's the ultimate Jewish thought structure. I don't know that it's found anywhere else. It takes enormous brains to do it. Um, it's, it's as structured as the sonnet. You know, we know a sonnet's got four. To, if you don't know the structure of a you don't know the structure of a lot of books, you can't get the meaning, because the meaning's in the structure. And Robert Alter and his great books, if, if I believe the scripture's inspired, therefore the structure's inspired, not just the individual words. So, um, you know, you can't read James Joyce's Ulysses, if you ever tried to, but you can't without knowing the structure of it. It just doesn't mean anything. So the chaotic structure, just to... Rep Is anyone here familiar with the chaotic structure? Anyone not? From Sarah's talk. From Sarah's talk. Yeah. Okay, so you find the middle verse... And, and you then, what happens is the first half will lead up to the middle verse and it will tend to be the statement of a problem. The middle verse is the key to the uncoding or decoding the problem. And the second half pursues the same theme, but now with the enlightenment of the middle verse. So at its best, you actually get, a, it's a dramatic parallel. Between, and very often, very often, the progress is from a rather shallow faith to a deeper faith. Very often the top half is about believing in God, but it's sort of like a set of slogans. And uh, the second half is with the reality of contest that faith rediscovered. So it's almost an image of growth. I love it because it's paradoxical. You go further and you, can, you get, in the finely tuned chiastic structures, you get going that you know, way, but you also get then a parallelism between the verses and they start to parallel each other. Imagine the intellect to do that. So the first verse and the last verse you read, the second verse and the penultimate verse, the third verse and the third last verse, and, and they start to talk to each other. And you, you begin to see they're actually shadowing each other. So it's, a, it's an incredibly elaborate structure. Now, is, this is what we see in Hebrews. Over the whole book, it's not tight, but it's thematic. It's very strong. I've got two slides on it. So the first chiastic structure is that the pivot is chapter 6. Um, it announces itself as the pivot of the book. Um, the top stream beginning from 1 through to 6, uh, the theme essentially is a veiled majesty. Like Jesus is there but hidden. Um, it is dominated by Moses. 
and the, 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 the public stream is Judaism. In other words, it's, it's, it's the evident public institutional religion that they all thought was the religion. And he, he reads it and reinterprets it and says there's a hidden, there's a hidden, there's a hidden. And, and the, the, the repeated phrase is, yes, but Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than angels, greater than... So, he's, so that's, that's that kind of descent. And he pivots at the end of chapter 5. He says, oh, I've got something bigger to tell you. Got to be ready for it. Then the pivot. And then what we get is, is chapter 7 through to 12 rips off the veil. Now it's unveiled majesty. This is Jesus in his glory. There's no comparisons anymore. He's the king. He's Melchizedek. He's reigning in the heavenlies and this is what it looks like. The hidden stream is now unveiled. It's being worked out actively in the heavens. It's not hidden there anymore, yet to be fully revealed on the earth. So that's the ultimate chiastic structure. Let's go into it now in more detail. Same diagram, but more detail. Oh, sorry, no, this, these are some of the hidden points, first of all. So the sun is always there. As he's going down the first half, he's intimating. He's, Jesus is implied in this journey everywhere. So therefore, the therefore is his purpose is unchanging and continuous. Yes, Jesus is revolutionary, but all he's doing is fulfilling what Abraham, it's just, it's the same journey. Um, it is in fact the same story that's being told. So, as we move, turn the corner, we get into chapter 7. This is the new order that has been inaugurated by the resurrection. The resurrection is what unveiled everything. Um, we're in the era of the spirit, which is working in the hearts and minds, making evident the ways of God. Uh, but a public reality, the city, a public reality is being instituted in heaven. So those are the kind of hidden themes that come through as he goes through. This guy was seriously smart. Uh, he's Shakespearean. This is Shakespearean intellect at work in profundity and skill. So this is the detailed one. Uh, same thing, but introducing the parallelisms. So chapter 1 begins with creation and the angels. It then moves into chapter 2, Psalm 8, rule. The rule, the frustrated rule of humanity. Chapter 3, Moses and the house Moses built. Chapter 4, Joshua and the journey into the promised land for rest. So this is the Exodus all summarised. Chapter 5, priesthood. Aaron and the priesthood. Then we pivot. And as we come out of the pivot, what's the first thing we get? The counterbalance to chapter 5 is chapter 7. New priesthood, Melchizedek. Aaron and Melchizedek. See there the vertical contrast? There's Aaron, no, no, it's Melchizedek who amplifies. And the amplification is happening throughout, which, by the way, is a rhetorical technique, throughout the second week, uh, arm. A new covenant, chapter 8, we've arrived, we're here, it's fulfilled, versus his whole point in chapter 4 with Joshua was, you think it's rest, it's not the rest. It's what, the land was not the journey. The journey's actually the, the spirit. Uh, chapter 3, Moses built a house. Chapter 9, Gee, that was the tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle. Jesus built a, built a house in the heavenlies. He's reconstructed the cosmos. So there's a vertical integration of the house metaphor. And chapter 2, the rule, Moses, the lost rule, becomes the rule of faith in chapter 11. And um, the chastisement of sons, that we're, we're actually ruling the cosmos. In contested space, we're really ruling. Um, and then the epic contrast that, you know, the beginning and end, it begins with some, I mean, the beginning of Hebrews is epic. 
you know. I, I just think, like, it's great to read it and be able to diagnose it, but I just cannot imagine myself with a blank sheet of paper writing the words, God who at many times and in various ways spoke to us in times past through his prophets has in these last days spoken to us through his son, by his son through whom he made the universe. What? <laughs> through whom he made the universe. <laughs> what do these guys see? Like uh, uh, epic. So that's creation and the angels and the, superior, and the apparent superiority of the angels. Although he's arguing that Jesus is superior to the angels. Down to chapter, the, the counterpoint in chapter 12, Mount Zion new creation and the joyful assembly of the saints who by, who, who by implication are now ruling the angels. So the, the, the first half is governed by the character of Moses and the second half by the character of Abraham. So that's the structure of the book. It's not quite as tight verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but thematically it's definitely there. There's no question that it's a, it's a book that's echoing itself all the way through with a view of amplifying and building up to uh, a really cosmic vision of uh, all that God's done in, in Jesus. Which uh, a good place to sort of finish might be the first time I did Hebrews many, many, many years ago when I think I got the first half right but didn't get through the second half so well. Uh, I, I still like the, uh, the heading of those talks, which was uh, Don't Underestimate Jesus, <laughs> which might be a good way to finish off. Can I ask another question? Yeah. When did you discover the chiastic structure of Hebrews? Well, I think it was... Uh, like, you know... I... It, the... the the heart of the discovery was unpicking what chapter 6 means. It's very clear that 6 is a turning point. That's obvious. But to the chiastic structure, probably in the last year, I mean, I've been preparing these talks, thinking about them for about 18, well, I've been giving them all year, but I was thinking about them for a year beforehand. Yeah. So during that time, I, I've got various attempts at this diagram over the last year. That's awesome. Well, um, in, in the sort of work that you do, yes. with the company, do you use a characteristic structure or do you use a linear structure? That's a really good question. Um, so for the tape, uh, Gordon's asked, in the work we do in consulting, do we use a chaotic structure or linear structure? Uh, if you go out on the wall, of, you'll see the chaotic structure on the wall. We call it the flying wedge. And it's been transformative for uh, lots of our clients. Um, yeah, I deliberately choose language that's, I just hate business acronyms like, you know, system architects and business analysts and all those crappy terms. So I just use idiosyncratic Monty Python terms and <laughs> they catch, people love them. Uh, this is epic. Uh, so where we use it, Gordon, would be... Um, in, in many organisational change situations or organisational structures, the normal way of, of trying to advance an organisation is hierarchical. So I, I, I mentioned to some of you talking out there that there's a strong case that management is dead, that management is filling in all the stuff in the middle between... So imagine that the top of the chiastic structure, 
I'll give you a, a, an example of when I used it. It was actually with my consulting with the tax office, and it was an argument I had with Michael Carmody. And it was convincing him that the way forward was a new way of working. And I actually used this model to persuade him. The two of us were on a whiteboard, and it won him over. I said, the problem with leaders is that you're up the top. So up the top, you could write the word vision. Generally, the top is kind of vision, a platonic view. And you're throwing vision out to the organisation, and the organisation's down the bottom saying, I'm confused. Um, the problem is that you've got this filtering of management in between, and you need to get a dialogue. So the arrows become direct dialogue between what we call the voice of intent and the voice of experience. So up the top is the voice of intent, down the bottom is the voice of experience. And a lot of what we do in Second Road is we call democratising strategies. We just knock the middle out and we have the very senior people talking to the very junior people. So I've just written up the case study, which Michael's not here, but he wonderfully led in the Navy, which was an epic case study. Um, has he ever told you much about that story? A little, yeah. A little. So what happened um, uh, was we were approached by the commander-in-chief of the Navy who had a terrible situation on his hands, which was following the tsunami. I don't know if any of you remember, but in Nias, a helicopter crashed and killed seven people. Naval helicopter um, in, in the operations. And that then led to a... killed all the seven on board, and, and it was a maintenance error. There was actually just a tiny little kind of pin that a, a per, the, the maintenance person hadn't put in and uh, the joystick didn't work, it fell out of the sky. So that led to an inquiry um, that was public, it was, on the it was on the front page of the Herald for weeks and weeks and weeks, the inquiry went on for months and the squadron was called 817 and things were just broken inside that squadron because of this. Just imagine that the forensic inquiry, you want, want you know, kind of guilt? Just imagine that what's being examined is why did seven of your colleagues die? And the real answer, and, and, and an 817 squadron has got pilots and maintenance workers in it. And the maintenance workers' mistake led to the death of the pilots. And furthermore, it's in an environment where the Navy and aviation don't get on anyway. Why aren't you in the Air Force anyway? And furthermore, it's happening in an environment where if you've ever been inside these things, which I was, they're like Mad Max. They're just, they're just incredible things. And, and it was happening within a culture, furthermore, if you went on, as, where the guys who, who ran these planes were sort of stigmatised in the Navy. They called them chaplains and potatoes. That was their throwaway line, chaplains and potatoes. In other words, all you do is you fly the chaplains around and you fly potatoes around. So uh, the, uh, there was this really, this culture of feeling not appreciated. So there's like this cascade group of problems. Uh, these were the same helicopters who were stigmatised, pilots who don't know if you remember the Sydney Hobart yacht race where that terrible storm came up and six people died. Well, these were the guys who rescued them, and, and yet they're called chaplains of potatoes. When I say rescued them, the way 
maritime rescue works is it's been privatised, which means that there's, when, when an emergency is called, the Canberra Research, the rescue headquarters, there's a, like a 12-hour gap before the Navy can go. When private, you know, it's a window to allow private aviators to put up their hand and, well, no one put their hand up. It was just a 12, all it did was, no, no one was putting their hand up to go out there. It just meant the Navy went out 12 hours later in the dark when conditions were awful. And these guys, they told us, these guys were flying the helicopters in, letting the guys down, and the waves were so big that the guy in the end was engulfed in a wave. And the waves were lapping the helicopter. And yet, yet they're called chaplains and potatoes. So we just got into this whole maelstrom of a broken situation. Now, the Navy is incredibly hierarchical. So they want to go top down or bottom up. And I just have so much respect for this Admiral because he's a great guy, great human being. He was told not to do this process by the then Minister for Defence and he told him, no, I'm doing it. I understand the delegation of authority and I'm doing it. Because what we said was, David, open it up. You're up the top. You guys have got a view up the top, like from 30,000 feet of what you think went wrong. Um, you've got your view on the situation. Go right down to the voice of experience down the bottom and have dialogue with them. Have 18-year-old maintenance recruits. Have junior pilots. Let's all get in this together. Guys from Canberra. So, so if you can see what I mean, the flying wedge becomes, we'll start at the top, we'll start at the bottom. And, and the integration of the view from the top and the view from the bottom gives us wisdom. Does that make sense to anyone? Mm -hmm. This is an anti-platonic view of how to run an organisation. There is no hierarchy in it. So... It's edgy to make these recommendations, which we do all the time. We do it, we use the flying wedge. I mean, I'm, I don't run a firm that's explicitly Christian, but that's the whole point. This is about how to live a wise life. So it's nothing to do with being Christian, it's just being human. So it's, 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 you know, every one of our assignments is shot through with it. And more and more people at the top of organisations are wanting to hear the voice from the street. And they can't get the voice from the street. There's this, all these filters in between, so... Okay. Can I just uh, the reason for asking you the question is because I see a lot of it in scripture is linear, not wedge. And what you're opening up is, is a different way of looking at it, which I think is needs to be explored far more seriously yeah. than currently. It, it's you know, the, the Western mindset follows I regard like a linear, a linear sort of pathway. Well, that's right, particularly the scientific mindset. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is a, the Hebrew answer to Plato, that chiastic structure. It's very, it's very profound. It's actually the management of paradox. I think if you look for it, um, it turns up a lot. So yes. Genesis 2 and 3 work on that. It, it, but, but, yeah, they're a lot. It's just because we're linear thinkers, we don't look for it. The book of Daniel's got a chiastic structure as well, actually. Has it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's 